It's the News Roundup, where we discuss the region's top stories of the week. And joining us this week, Paul Pronovo, editor at the Cape Cod Times. Morning, Paul. Good morning, Minnie. I was just listening to that weather, 46, I 45. <laughs> I know. <laughs> that time of year. Well, we're going to begin this, with, this week with uh, Veterans Day and many remembrances across the region. Uh, and, and this was sort of a long weekend, so we had Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. Right. And uh, Veterans Day, of course, is on November 11th, which this year fell on a Sunday. So uh, as is often the case when you have a holiday on a Sunday, Monday becomes also the de facto day. So a lot of events um, throughout uh, the Cape and the Islands spread out over the whole weekend, really. Um, you know, very uh, touching remembrances. Uh, I think um, the Cape and Islands, much like probably our whole country, has really uh, uh, taken taken these moments to step back Thank veterans, um, you know, sort of uh, a byproduct of the fact that we've been at in, in war for, for more than a decade now uh, in Afghanistan and also for a while there, for a long while there in, in Iraq. And I think that really keeps veterans' issues at the forefront. And so folks uh, who served in any capacity, uh, whether at war or just simply in the service, uh, were being thanked over, over the weekend, and uh, rightly so. Yeah, and, you know, it's, 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 it's a time to really, as you say, sort of step back and, and, and think and think thank them because really for most of us we go out our lives uh and you know through the rest of the year we're not really thinking all that much about it we have veterans day memorial day to kind of remind us and what some of these veterans and families are going through the struggles that they go through 365 days a year and and uh you know we were learning more about those struggles uh, that veterans and their families are having with some of the the stories surrounding those uh, observances. Right. We, we had a, um, a story that uh, published on Sunday that talked about some of the difficulties veterans have in, in just basically acquiring the benefits that are that are afforded them. Um, it's easy to wave a flag on, on Veterans Day. It's a lot harder to work mm-hmm. your way through the bureaucracy um, that is the federal government, especially at a time when money is tight for, for everything. And, and certainly um, that applies to veteran services as well. And, and, and at the same time, it's sort of a perfect storm. Uh, money is tight. At the same time, the, the veterans who need services are growing exponentially. I think we had a statistic that somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, 46% of folks uh, 65 and older on the Cape and the Islands uh, were veterans. Um, when you reach the age of uh, 75 plus, it's closer to 86% or maybe even 81%, but really a, a mm. big jump. Um, so those you know older seniors, 75 plus, um, are, are veterans. They're entitled to services. And guess what? These are also people of a demographic that need the services. They need uh, home health aids. They need uh, nursing home services. They need health care-related uh, uh, services. And it takes sometimes up to a year uh, to process applications to get the benefits that they're afforded. And we focused on a few folks, um, including uh, a woman whose, whose husband was a veteran of World War II. He passed a couple years ago. Um, she now is in need of tapping into the government services and has been waiting for more than a year. And the mm. Barnstable Veterans Agent pointed out that it's a travesty that folks yeah. have to wait this long. And then we've got the veterans returning for more. And of course, with all of our medical advances, uh, you know, military personnel who might have died in previous wars are surviving some of their injuries. But then they're coming back and they're needing some some serious help, especially with head injuries. We're seeing a lot of that and, and really a lot of, of veterans struggling with homelessness and, and addiction problems, post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, there really is a huge need here. Right. Prosthetics are the most visible sign of, of the veterans of the more recent conflicts coming home. You, you see folks who've lost their arms or their legs. Um, but as you point out, head injuries are a very serious issue. Um, 
both uh, traumatic brain injuries, concussions, and the like, uh, but also mental health issues. Right. And and as you say, that's that's really created a, a serious problem that we are facing. Um, I think that we are just starting to get our arms around the problem uh, because you have folks um, running the spectrum from uh, very serious post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms. And, and those folks, uh, the good news for those folks is that the, the uh, symptoms are so apparent that they, they get treatment. To folks who maybe slide a little bit down mm-hmm. on the scale are facing struggles but are simply trying to cope with them on their own. And, and those are the folks who, who, frankly, probably fall through the cracks yeah. unless a family member or, or a service provider can intervene. You know, they're just tra- trying to gut it out. And, and that's, frankly, not possible. And, and th- those are the folks that need, need our help uh, probably as much as anybody. Right. Well, in other news, the, those great white sharks tagged by shark researcher Greg Skolmo providing some information, especially about migratory patterns, but not enough yet that we really know where they're going and why. Yeah, fascinating though um, to see some of this research, and and you know Greg Skomel is is just eating eating this stuff up. I mean, we're finally getting real uh, data, and in some cases, real time data on what the sharks uh, are like. Uh, of course, we spend a lot of time during the summer talking about uh, the great white sharks off the Cape. I think we're fast becoming. Uh, 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 students of their sort of biology uh, related to them. And so we, we've got that. But so much, even by experts, is unknown uh, for uh, about shark behavior. So the fact that they're here and, and getting tagged um, is very helpful. Uh, Greg Skomel has uh, tagged, I believe, uh, 17 uh, great white sharks with acoustic tags, which give, you know, some basic uh, data information. And, uh, and, and these tags also will basically jettison off the shark's uh, wherever they've tagged them, generally the, the dorsal fin, um, where they can collect information, see where they've been uh, over periods of time. Um, that's very helpful. Two sharks, however, uh, this summer were tagged with uh, satellite beacons that basically give real-time information so you can track them wherever they go. And, and one of these sharks, uh, really interesting, kind of the much like many of the snowbirds on, <laughs> on Cape Cod, uh, traveled from uh, mid-September um, and just recently was spotted uh, in northern Florida, uh, off the coast of northern Florida. And um, that's a migration pattern that suggests not a lot of stops in between. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they, they, they were staying, this shark I believe was named Mary Lee, <laughs> Mary Lee yeah. and uh, was up in the waters around here. As soon as um, sort of the temperatures started to turn, boom, down to Florida and now is, is hanging out down there. Is that a pattern all sharks follow? Well, we don't have we enough don't data know, to yeah. find out. And, and that's the sort of thing that will continue I'm remember, sure. was was it last winter where uh, I, I don't remember was it in December there yeah. was a, the the water temperature dropped and you know and Greg thought when it got to a certain temperature they left and surprise surprise there was one that was still sticking around so again right. it's we have these puzzles you think you know you think you've got some information that tells you what they will do and then. They do something else. <laughs> they, yeah, absolutely, and and uh, you know, obviously, they it's not a pack mentality. I mean, these sharks uh, are individualistic, obviously, and they and they travel around in their own uh, sort of uh, ways. Uh, but the, they hope that they're going to collect enough data to see some trends yeah. and see see what happens and and what conditions sort of spark it. I guess uh, Greg Skomel said that it's, it appears that a lot of sharks left around the sandy time frame, but not everybody uh, or not all of them. And uh, as you pointed out. 
mid-December last year, there were still uh, quite a few uh, yeah, still hanging, hanging around the local. Yeah, well, this is going to be really exciting as he starts to collect more and more information because, as, as we know, there's so little we know about them. I mean, really, it'll, it will tell us so much <clears throat> Excuse me, about their behavior and, and being able to predict where they might be. And, of course, that's good for public safety right. uh, to try to figure that and, out. And I remember that. talking to Greg Scomel this summer. He was at the Jaws Fest at Martha's Vineyard, and he talked about watching Jaws, and he wanted to be Mr. Hooper and get right. all the scientific data. And, and he, he said... Never in his wild, wildest dreams did he expect to get this close this often right. to great white sharks to collect this data. And he is very quickly becoming, on the East Coast at least, uh, the expert the guy, in, in, right. in, in, in this sort of stuff. And he's um, traveling uh, now and not just speaking to so- sort of scientific circles, though certainly he is there. Um, I think it was this past weekend he spoke uh, the Wellfleet Audubon Sanctuary on on sharks. And mm-hmm. so just the general public is getting really well educated. Well, and we should this. say it's not just great white sharks. He's an, he's an expert on all sharks. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Fascinating stuff. Well, an announcer's booth at a softball field in Hyannis was actually set on fire this week by some homeless teenagers. And this has really brought to light an issue we don't often hear much about. And that's the, the number of homeless teenagers, right. which is tough to count. I mean, we're seeing an uptick, but, you know, so many of them where they go couch surf, you know, they're staying at this one's house or that one's house and really don't have a home. And then you have the ones who are out on the street. Right. It's really hard to put um, a number on it. Um, and, and that really applies to homelessness in general um, on the Cape and elsewhere. Uh, but certainly this issue where it seems uh, uh, this fire was started by some, some homeless teens who were basically uh, looking to uh, have shelter from the, the Lopes Fieldhouse, which is at the softball field down on, on Ocean Street in Hyannis, um, really became quite a conflagration. It, it went up. It, it really burned uh, fast and, and completely. And that really got people's attention. And they, I mean, not that the issue is not known. It is known. Mm -hmm. Uh, But when you think about the numbers, they're probably higher than we realize. Um, And to think that there are teenagers out on the street um, is is just hard for us to grasp. Mm -hmm. And and there are a number of reasons for it. Um, Of course, uh, drugs uh, are a a primary cause for for folks uh, getting out of their house or getting into a situation where they're homeless. And the service providers in and around Hyannis and elsewhere uh, try to catch them, catch mm-hmm. them in a safety net. But that's not always possible. A lot of folks don't want to be caught. Right. And, and that means they are out on the street. They're, they're living in, in tents or they're living, in this case, in, in the field house or anywhere they can find a shelter. Maybe it's an abandoned building. And uh, that's um, a, a, a safety hazard for them. But obviously, it's also a safety hazard for others. Mm-hmm. I mean, in this, this case, you know, you had the fire department respond. Uh, the good news about a, 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 a score house, a field house, is it's relatively small, pretty contained. And so when the fire department goes to address it, you know, there's no concern that there are other people maybe elsewhere in the building. Um, but you don't have to think too long ago to the, the uh, storage facility in Worcester that burned mm-hmm. to the ground and a big sort of maze-like facility and, and uh, started by some folks homeless in Worcester living there. And the fire department had to go in and, and uh, you know, make sure everyone was out of the building. They lost several people. Right. So, I mean, this is a, a serious safety issue. And it's also, of course, a major societal issue that, that we're, we're looking to address. Right. And then uh, we have some good news on the jobs front. Uh, Hydroid is uh, is expanding. They what make underwater vehicles? Yeah, um, so uh, unmanned submersibles that do all sorts of different uh, research, whether it's data collection or, or the like. 
and uh, they're based in Bourne. Um, they're obviously uh, a, a high-tech company, and they're expanding significantly. They're they're building uh, a new facility. Uh, I, I think it was somewhere. I, I could be wrong about this, but I thought it was somewhere in the neighborhood of 20,000 square feet, which is a big, mm. big place, um, to house uh, and headquarter all their employees. Um, they currently have about 90. They're looking to add 30, That's which is, good. Which 30 is a jobs, really yeah. big jump. And these are good jobs. These are um, everywhere from your, your customer service techs to engineering jobs. Mm-hmm. So these are, you know, these are high-level jobs, and uh, folks in Bourne are very happy about it. Of course, the folks at Hydroid are, are mm-hmm. happy about it as well. Um, and, and But the folks at Bourne really wanted to make sure that this company stayed here. In fact, they talk, uh, some town officials talked about this is what our community is about. So this is sort of the kind of job uh, or, or, or company that we're trying to uh, cultivate here. And, and really, it stretches as we know, from sort of born around Sandwich and, and back in into this direction, into the Woods Hole area, where there are a lot of high-tech and scientific jobs um, and, and companies, and not just sort of the Woods Hole and the marine biological laboratories of the world, uh, but smaller companies are starting to pop up, and sometimes they go from small to pretty big, mm-hmm. and that's certainly mm-hmm. the case with, with Hydroid and a few others. Mm-hmm. So News Roundup, we're talking about the region's top stories of the week with Paul Pronovo, editor at the Cape Cod Times. We had some town meetings held this week, so I guess we'll check on some highlights. Let's start in Bourne. <laughs> Let's see. In Bourne, they uh, uh, looked to okay a property uh, buy that included a, a historic property. And, it, you know, I have to confess, when I first read this story, I thought, What's the big deal? It's 1960. No, the property was built in 1690. So mm. that's why the Historic Commission was very interested in uh, acquiring this property. Some questions came up during town meeting um, about maybe building a parking lot on this property. It's a little more than an acre of, of space. And uh, uh, ultimately, that sort of issue was put aside. They thought, you know, we, we can't really let this go. I mean, there was already a motion to have the, this area in, in past uh, town meetings um, commercially zoned. Owned, issues that were turned down. And so so the folks who are interested in historic preservation said, here's our opportunity. We can buy this property. And I think, frankly, they got it for a steal somewhere in the neighborhood of $250,000 when it's valued at uh, $360,000 mm. just on an assessor's uh, mm-hmm. uh, map. Um, you know, in historic terms, I think people might argue that it's worth a lot more than that. And mm-hmm. so they're probably going to, they're looking to restore it and um, and uh, and move forward with the uh, historic property. And then we move to Falmouth. Three days, town meeting, three <sighs> wow, nights. Can you imagine that? Three <laughs> nights of town meeting. Um, the main issue is related to the uh, wind turbines, of course, have been a, a longstanding um, controversy in, in Falmouth. And a few different articles came up related uh, to, the wind, to the wind turbines, wind one and wind two. Um, the town has put... Uh, uh, mitigation steps into place about the wind turbines as they try to wrestle with the future of of both these turbines and sort of wind zoning in general in Falmouth. This goes back to uh, neighbor complaints of of the health effects, uh, largely from noise and flicker uh, from these turbines. Um, so, so one article was to basically take the size of turbines and decrease it significantly from somewhere in the neighborhood. I think uh, the, the turbines Win 1 and Win 2 are in the neighborhood of uh, 100 and uh, or rather 1.6 kilowatts. I think they wanted to drop them to about 500 uh, megawatts. I mean, really much s- smaller turbine and have most of the power distributed to whatever it is. So let's say if you put it on a wastewater mm-hmm. uh, facility, most of the power is used to, to fuel that uh, plant. Um, 
That was quite a bit of debate. Ultimately, it was defeated. I think folks believe that while there are still issues with Wind 1 and Wind 2, they worry that this completely uh, rolls back the clock in terms of moving forward in in wind uh, energy production. And it's funny how how things have changed. The pendulum has really swung back. I mean, Falmouth was... Uh, uh, the poster uh, town for for wind development, and I, I remember the the state's uh, chief environmental officer uh, and Falmouth resident mm-hmm. uh, Ian Bowles cutting the ribbon mm-hmm. on Wind One, saying this is going to be a model for the Commonwealth, and uh, because of those problems uh, that have had a chilling effect across the state. Falmouth has become, well, almost became the opposite mm-hmm. with, with things like this. Uh, they turned it down. They said, no, we, we need, need to address problems, definitely, but we're still going to move forward. Um, another issue uh, that they wind-related, they, they tabled, um, basically, was what to do with wind one and wind two. Mm-hmm. And maybe there was some discussion of taking them offline altogether. And again, the town said, you know, yeah. that's that's not what we need to do. We do need to address some issues, but we don't want to go that far. And that's a big question. What are they going to do about that? You know, I mean, you've got so many different opinions and you know either way it's going to cost some money and and you know how's that all going to work and then you get these poor folks you know living around right. the turbines you know having to deal with this while while we figure out what to do and what's frustrating i think for some members of the planning board and others who were behind um, some of these articles to address the issues they said look we've been working on this for a year mm-hmm. this is exactly what we are charged to do is to address it this is what we feel we need to do and some folks just i, I, yeah. I believe felt that it just went too far and then uh, and Dennis i guess the big uh, story there was the uh, town hall what to do with it and and it becomes a question today what's the future of the town hall right and and that question remains uh, open ended the town turned down a uh, 3.4 million dollar renovation project um, I love the comment by uh, Wayne Bergeron, one of the selectmen from Dennis. He said, I feel like I'm living in a bizarro world here. I mean, <laughs> saying that uh, Dennis uh, Town Hall needs renovations is like saying the Titanic needs a bilge pump. <laughs> I mean, it was it was clear that, that work needs to be done. Uh, but, but the town meeting ultimately turned it down because they're not really sure if that's uh, – well, two reasons, really, I think, uh, that surfaced. One, they're not sure if, if renovating the town hall is their best strategy. Maybe they should move uh, the town, uh, essentially the town government, to another facility closer uh, to the police uh, station. Um, That was one issue I think that was raised. And the other issue was how this would be funded. Mm -hmm. Um, The way uh, the the selectmen had positioned this, it would not raise... um, the uh, your tax rate in in Dennis uh, and there was there was they basically were going to tap into a fund that was passed a couple of years ago for um, capital projects so it wouldn't raise the tax rate the finance committee said that's well and good but this is way too big a project for something like that it's going to put us into an unprecedented debt level and we don't think that's a good idea so they they kind of there was no sort of unified message from town officials and and as when that happens typically. Uh, that scares away voters, yeah, sure. so they turned it down. And I guess that's the, the question now they're they're grappling with. Okay, so what do we do now? That's that's uh, the right. to- talks today, right? Right. All right. And then uh, Brewster also had town meeting this week. Right. Um, Brewster okayed uh, a number of items um, related to town space, but what's interesting is they turned down the one that I won't say everyone was there to talk about, but certainly has been the talk of the town and, and a lot a talk of 
um, a lot of the Cape for some time, um, and this is having a, a dog park. Uh, we've talked a lot about this mm-hmm. on, on the program uh, ever since uh, dogs were banned from uh, Drummer Boy Park uh, uh, earlier last year. Uh, folks have been saying, dog owners in particular, have been saying, well, we got to do something. And mm-hmm. so this proposal came to town meeting to create a park that would be uh, sort of split, uh, if you will. It's a funny little division, actually. One uh, to be a dog park. Uh, rather dog park, the other to be a skate park for mm-hmm. teens, feeling like they they hit two two needs right. in the community. Um, ultimately turned down, uh, opponents said that they didn't feel this proposal was very well thought through. They felt it was a bit of a, a knee-jerk reaction, if you will, to uh, the banning of the dogs at Drummer Boy. And, oh, by the way, since there's a lawsuit filed uh, by an, uh, a, an act, actually it's an out-of-town resident, I believe, has a, a summer home in Dennis uh, related to this issue, saying that the Board of Health didn't have the right to, to uh, issue this ban, uh, folks said, well, why don't we wait and see how that suit resolves itself, because maybe the dogs will be back mm-hmm. at Drummer Boy after all. Well, I have I'm looking into my crystal ball. I predict there will be a dog park at some point. There's <laughs> oh. there's a lot of people with dogs who, who and and look at the dog parks that have popped up all over. We have one in Falmouth. There's Provincetown. I mean, they're they're popping up all over the place. Exactly, and and we even at the time uh, recalled that some folks were saying this is overreactionary by the Board of Health. I mean, they were addressing uh, obviously health complaints uh, that. Uh, 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 doggy do was being mm-hmm. left behind and that the dogs were harassing uh, folks who were in and around the playground. And uh, that needed to be addressed mm-hmm. because while there are a lot of dog owners, on the other hand, there are a lot of folks who don't aren't really, really big fans of dogs, the dogs and they don't exactly. want to be around dogs. And, and so, you know, you have to balance those two rights. Um, but it felt like this was sort of a blanket approach mm-hmm. to addressing that situation as opposed to maybe a more uh, uh, surgical approach. Uh, I'm not on the Board of Health, so I can't really criticize <laughs> right, right, them, right. but uh, I think you're right. A solution will Something be struck will happen here, yeah. somewhere along the way. Uh, well, you mentioned getting a little cool out there, and before you know it, we're going to see those snowflakes fly or some ice. And Massachusetts Department of Trans- Transportation unveiled a new tool for battling ice and snow on roads and bridges that could not only save money, but is more environmentally friendly. Yeah, this is interesting. Um, basically, uh, they're going to add, I mean, to boil it down, they're going to add more salt brine to the chemical mix uh, that that treats the roads. And what this does is, obviously, uh, when you add more of something else, uh, something a little more innocuous than chemicals like salt, um, though salt's not great, but it's better than the chemicals that they currently use, um, that means less chemicals on the road, uh, which means two things. One, it's a little more ecologically friendly, and two, as it turns out, it's cheaper. Mm-hmm. And, and they uh, unveiled this... Uh, uh, I think it's called a brine extreme machine mm-hmm, down mm-hmm. at the Sagamore uh, Department of Transportation building. And uh, basically it's going to process the salt brine right there. It'll be mixed with the chemicals and they'll be out on the roads. Um, interesting. And, and it, we'll see how this plays out. Uh, transportation officials said, among other things, and the cost savings being chief among them, uh, that they were able to sort of pre-treat the roads in advance. That oh, with, really? with the hmm. chemicals, you can only be out about a couple hours um, ahead of a storm. Uh, with this, you can be out, I believe they said, about 24 hours ahead. Oh, so if you great. know a storm's coming, you can you can go and, and, and treat your roads. Let's well, just hope it's really as environmentally friendly as <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, we, we talk about environmentally friendly <laughs> yeah. solutions all the yeah, time. And, and they, then they, they turn out not, not to be so much. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's interesting. It, this is And this facility will treat for the South Shore, South Coast, and onto the Cape. And largely why they can do this and eliminate some of the chemicals is because our temperatures are, even when we get mm-hmm. snow, slightly higher, higher yeah. than, say, the Western Mass. So it's good news. All right. Barnstable Girls volleyball team heading to the state semifinals. 
Yeah, we're all, we're all going to have a Red Raider day tomorrow, I think. <laughs> uh, this, this is, I mean, the, the Barnstable High School um, girls volleyball team is is a juggernaut. I mean, this is a program. There, there are legendary programs throughout the state. I mean, Walpole uh, for years had the Rebels football program. I, I think Wellesley has soccer. I mean, right down the line, you can think of, of high school sports that, that are really synonymous with the community. And in Barnstable, uh, while we have lots of uh, good teams, I think the, the volleyball, girls volleyball team is probably among the most uh, successful. They go for the state championship again uh, tomorrow against their uh, nemesis from Newton North. Mm-hmm. This is a very good team. Uh, in fact, they handed them their only loss. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is sort That'd of a good game. revenge game. It is. And uh, Barnstable has, uh, I guess, in the semifinals on um, on Wednesday night, they lost the first match. They were down in the second and third matches, came back in both and, and won. It's very exciting. Um, Tom Turco, the coach, uh, is is looking forward to their chances, and it's it's fun to watch these kids. This mm-hmm. is the only, incidentally, um, this is sort of championship weekend in a lot of different sports, and sometimes the Cape and the Islands have several teams playing for uh, significant championships. This is the only Cape and Islands town that's that's advanced mm-hmm. this far this fall. Right. So, so uh, I said semifinals. See. This is the state finals. They've the, already yes. won the semifinals. Oh yes, yeah, the semifinals the are over. Yeah, this is right. this is this is for all the right. marbles. And then over to high school football, the Island Cup between Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket High uh, set for tomorrow at one. At 1 p.m. at Martha's Vineyard High. whole lot of excitement going on here, as usual, but it seems a little bit, little bit raised a little more than usual. Yeah, well, I think it, there was a one-year hiatus in 2009 of the Island Cup, and, and there were a number of reasons for it, and, and uh, we won't even go into them. But we don't want to go back there. We won't go back there. <laughs> but I think what happened since then is that people came to appreciate this event, this uh, inter-island rivalry, uh, even more so. It's into its 65th year. Um, there are pep rallies and events that lead up to these things. Um, and the way the Island Cup works is that it's it's you know hosted either by Nantucket or Martha's Vineyard each year. It's the Saturday before Thanksgiving, and it's a big you know sort of pride event. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's sometimes carries some consequences if one or both of the teams uh, are having a really good season. Uh, maybe it, it's going to lead them to the the super. Super Bowl, the super, the high school Super Bowl uh, tournament. Um, not the case this year. Both teams are, are good, but not so good that they're qualifying for Super Bowls. So it's just about Island Pride, yeah. and and you know it's 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 on uh, as you said Martha's Vineyard tomorrow. Um, but you're going to see a huge contingent from Nantucket oh, course, heading yeah. over, tailgating ahead of time, watching the game. There are um, uh, there's a JV game beforehand, a, a seventh and eighth grade uh, teams face off, and they really make it. An event and the weather's supposed to be nice, and so, you know it's going to be yep, classic high school go. football. Though. And as a South Yarmouth woman can attest, you need to check out those grapes before you serve them. Oh, how creepy! You know, black uh, widow and your grapes. Yeesh. Found the black widow, and you know, I I think we. It seems like anyone who who buys grapes knows that you you're supposed to wash them, but you know, you really do have to be careful. And this is the latest reminder. That um, in those grapes could be something that uh, came came from where they were picked, and, yep. and uh, so you got to wash them off, wash them off, wash them off, and look for the spider. She she has the spider. It's so creepy in that little yeah. Tupperware container. She and she can't swear that it's from the supermarket because, frankly, there are uh, spiders and creatures around here. Could be a black yeah. widow. So not pointing the fingers at anyone, but 
uh, she she called us to say we should let people know that they yeah. they're going to take well, caution. and of course you want to wash the grapes off anyway because you know this is something I read somewhere. Especially kids who eat a lot of grapes, they use a lot of chemicals, especially right. on the grapes coming from other countries. So you want to wash them anyway. And, and as a way... germaphobe, I wash everything all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and then finally, this morning we uh, you, you want to mention the Polar Express, which is. Uh, up and going, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's the um, As of today, they had a sort of a preview ride uh, last weekend, and, and this looks to be just a really cool event. It's, it's the Cape Cod Central Railroad, um, which, as we know, is, is reorganized under new management. And um, this is, uh, any, anyone who has kids knows the story of the Polar Express. They're basically trying to reenact it on the train. Uh, Santa gets on board. The elves are singing. You get hot chocolate. The kids go in their PJs. I mean, a great way, it looks like, right. to kick off the holiday season. And then, of course, we've got Barbie over at Edaville Railroad, if, you, if you're more of a Barbie fan. Go check I'm... out Barbie. I know exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Pronovo, editor at the Cape Cod Times. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Mindy. I'm Mindy Todd. Thank you for listening. Point airs weekdays at 9.30 a.m. and 7.30 p.m. We're also on Facebook at The Point, WCAI. The Point is produced by Amy Vince. The executive producer is Mindy Todd. Production assistance from Dan Tridel. Theme music by Benjamin Verdery and William Coulter. The Point is a production of the Cape and Islands NPR stations, a service of WGBH. WGBH.